You're listening to the King's Church Podcast. It's our desire to make the kingdom of God known in Portsmouth as it is in heaven. Hey, good morning. Someone called me by name. Wonderful. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, Oh, hey, it's great to see you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh, as has been mentioned. Um, I'm part of the leadership team here. As Drew has said, if you are new amongst us, welcome. It's great to see you. For those of you who are watching online, welcome to you as well. This morning, I've got the privilege of kind of landing this plane that we've called Resilient Faith. Um, It's a series that we've been in for the last, well, since the start of the year, so whatever that is now, the last eight weeks. And in this series, um, we've been looking at a number of men and women throughout the Old Testament and the way that they exhibited and lived resiliently in the midst of a culture that was hard, where they faced trial on many sides. And so we're going to try and land this this morning. Um, I'm just going to let you know at the front end um, where we're going to land this morning um, is a bold invitation to come and receive prayer. And so you might just need the next half an hour to mull on what does it look like for you to get out of your seat and to come and be prayed for. Um, and there's, there's reason why I say that at the front end, because I, I want to encourage you as a believer in Jesus that there is something I think that the Lord is wanting to say to every single one of us here this morning that is going to elicit some form of response. Um, and also, because I've got the job of landing this series, just buckle in. I've got quite a lot to say. So it's going to be fun. We've got a little way to go. So there's three things I want to look at just to give you a bit of a framework for where we're going to go over the next uh, 45 hours. Three things. Number one, it's not 45 hours. Um, three things. Number one, we're going to look at stories, three stories from the, uh, from the book of Daniel. Three stories from the book of Daniel of those who were determined, those who took a stand, and those who surrendered in prayer. So that's point number one. Point number two is that we're going to look at what does it mean for you and I to live as exiles. I'll explain that a bit later on. And then finally, we're going to land at a point uh, with a radical call for us to participate together with God in radical redemptive participation. And if you're like, I don't know what any of those words mean, don't worry, we'll get there. So that's where we're going to land. Number one, determined, stand, surrender. Three stories. Let's work through them one at a time. If you've got a Bible, you can go to Daniel 8, uh, and we're going to jump through. I'm going to paraphrase some of the story and just read it as story um, and pick out a few verses as we journey through this. So at the beginning of Daniel 8, um, well, in Daniel, we get this picture of there's two kings, and there's one king called King Jehoiakim, and there's another king called King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar is from the Babylonian Empire, and he brings an army with him to siege Jerusalem. And King Jehoiakim, his is his third year, and King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he sieges Jerusalem. And he orders Aspenaz, who's his chief advisor, to go out into the kingdom to find men who are wise, who are good-looking, who are bright, who are, uh, who are well-connected. And he says, go and find them, for I want to train them up in the ways of the kingdom so that they can serve as part of my household. And so Aspenaz goes out and he finds, he brings back four men. He finds Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they were chosen to go into three years of training in the household in order to then become those who would serve the king. 
But we read in verse 8 these words, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch, so that's one of the leaders, not to defile himself. Now remember, Daniel is not part of the Babylonian empire. He is in the training to then sit under the king of Babylon, who's now besieged his hometown, and in that place he is offered food at the king's table. But he determined himself, which another way of putting it, he set his heart upon, he had a strong inner resolve that he would not defile himself with a diet of non-kosher meat or drink, the wine that had been offered to the Babylonian gods. He had a resilient spirit to say no to the things that were wrong. First story, story number two, in Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar has now been ruling for a number of years, and he now erects a large statue, a colossal giant statue, some 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, on the plain of Jura in Babylon. So this king is clearly loves himself. He's made a huge statue of himself, and he summons all of the leaders from the land. He summons them all together, and there's a whole list in, in Daniel, which you can read there. And he gathers, gathers them all together, and he tells them, and the... The herald commanded the people of all the nations that they, every time that the harp and the zither... Does anyone know what a zither is? No. Anyway. Well, you know your musical instruments, no? No idea. A bit old for you. We need to bring back the zither in worship, um, whatever it is. The harp, the harp, the zither, all these other... When you hear that begin to make a rousing chorus, you were to bow down before the statue. So that's what they're all commanded to do. Now, certain Chaldeans seized upon this opportunity to accuse the Jewish officials, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who when the zither struck up its chords, and when the music came to a rousing point, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow the knee. And so they said, hold on a minute, these, these men who are in your household, they're not doing what you commanded them to do. So take Shadrach and the boys and throw them into the, furry into the fiery furnace. Get rid of them. They are not following through with what you've commanded them to do. These men were appointed to the king's household to serve the king, but yet they didn't bow down and they didn't listen to the rules of the king. For they knew that the authority of God was greater than the authority of the king. And so they had a resilient spirit to remain standing when everybody else bowed the knee. The king summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he confronted them, questioning their refusal to worship his gods, and he th threatened to throw them into the furnace's flames, and he demanded their compliance. We read this in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question, and I love this bit. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And if he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Oh, they had a firm resolve, right? They knew the God that they worshipped. They knew that God and the, the authority of the God they worshipped was bigger and had more authority than the authority of the king. So, the king said, turn the heat up, and he threw them into the fiery furnace. 
We read in verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. And he exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So the men came out of the fire completely unharmed. Let's go to story number three. Now we have a new king. We find this in Daniel 6, a new king named Darius who appointed 120 satraps. These are the local leaders. Imagine it as you were, like local councillors dotted around the kingdom to oversee the kingdom with three administrators, including our boy Daniel, to supervise and prevent corruption. Now, I love this part of the story because here the scriptures tell us that Daniel was distinct. There was something about him. In the scriptures, it says that he had an exceptional spirit. There was something about him which set him apart from all the others And he was given permission and the position of authority of the whole kingdom. Now, the other satraps didn't like this. The other leaders didn't like this. And they kept trying to find a charge against Daniel. Remember, Daniel is an Israelite. He's a Jew. He's not a Babylonian. He got drafted into the king's household. Like Shadrach and the boys, he is there. And they didn't like him. They wanted to find and accuse him of things that he was doing wrong. It says in verse 4, they kept trying to find a charge against Daniel. But they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel, unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. Daniel was a man of solid reputation. Why? Because his character was unwavering. He stayed strong in the Lord. Time after time after time, he stayed strong in the Lord. How often do we see it? In the world of politics, I don't know if you're tracking American politics right now, they just try to tear each other down, both sides, trying to dig up dirt on the other ones. That's what they're doing here with Daniel. They're trying to dig up dirt on him, trying to to find things wrong with him. But he was a man of solid reputation. His character was unwavering. They could find nothing on Daniel. So we read in verse 6 that the administrators and the satraps approached King Darius, proposing a decree that for 30 days, anyone who was found praying to anyone other than the king would face punishment in the lion's den. And Darius, influenced by their request, signed the decree into law. We find this in verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He was unmoved. He was unshaken. He was unchanged by the law. And he said, I will carry on praying. And if you know the story, it goes on. And Daniel is indeed found. He's thrown into the lion's den. And God shuts the mouth of the lions. And Darius goes on and then worships God because he is the ultimate authority. Three stories. And in these stories, we get this incredible picture of resilient faith. Remember, Resilient faith is our posture of our heart, our mind, our soul to remain steadfast in following Jesus whilst living in a culture in opposition to that pursuit. These four men were in exile. The culture of Babylon was not the culture in which they grew up and that they lived in. They were drafted in to serve in the king's households. They were tempted and tried multiple times to live a certain way, but yet they had this firm resolve in their pursuit of the one true 
God. Daniel was determined to stay faithful to God, and he passed up the opportunity to eat foods at the king's table. That would have been so hard for the king to have seen. But Daniel worshipped God. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand when everybody else bowed. Everybody else had been looking around going, what are they doing? They stayed strong. They stood. It would have been so much easier for them to just gone along with the crowd and bowed the knee. But they stood up for what they believed in, in the midst of a culture that was in pursuit of a different God. And then we see Daniel continue to surrender in prayer, even when a law was signed that said, you can't do this. And the, door, the, the windows were flung wide open and he bowed his knee three times a day and he continued to do as he had done before. So what does this mean for us? This is when we move on to point number two, living as exiles. Today in the culture that we live in, we find ourselves ever increasingly in a position of exile, in a culture which is constantly trying to find ways to distract us and dissuade us away from following after Jesus. I don't know whether you feel that pressure or not. I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but you know what? The church of Jesus Christ will always stay strong, and yet around us we find so many churches closing. So many Christians giving up on their faith. So many people falling away from a faith which they may have lived in for a long time. And we are living in a place of exile. We live in a post-Christian world where to be a follower of Jesus is increasingly hard. And what do I mean by exile? Let me just briefly make comment on this. The theme of exile we find woven into Scripture all the way from Genesis where Adam and Eve are in the garden, and what happens to them when sin enters into the world? God pushes them out of the garden into exile away from God. We then see, as scriptures here, men and women, which we've seen all throughout the story of this series, who find themselves in a culture where they find themselves in exile. They are the minority. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are the only ones who take a stand when everybody else bows a knee. They are in exile. They are a minority. For us specifically, we've seen a dramatic shift away from what is known as Christendom. Christendom came about in the 4th century when the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official imperial religion. But then, this has led to a turn of events which over time, and I've got no time at all to go into this, has seen a a strengthening of what is known as the church and the state, where alongside one another they have been the pillar, two pillars of society. But those are crumbling. That of faith and religion and the church, but also that of politics are crumbling. The world around us is in a fragile state. We know it when we just read the news, watch the news for any moment, look at the state of politics, look at the state of the NHS, look at the state of schooling systems, everything. It's crumbling. We are in a difficult time, and the church is no different. We are in a difficult moment. I'm so glad you're here. But for the far, many, many people would say that for the past 250 years, we've seen a breaking apart of Christendom. And as the respect given to the church and the voice that was given to the church and the voice that was given to Christians is more and more pushed to the margins, as our claims of truth are belittled and seen as increasingly irrelevant, in an increasingly secular society, Christians find themselves more and more as exiles, as the minority. Michael Frost, in his brilliant book, which is called Exiles, 
He's a Christian theologian and missiologist. He says this, the ground has literally slipped underneath the church. So the ground on which the church stood on for hundreds of years in a privileged place within Christendom has slipped underneath us and we find ourselves now on shaking ground. No longer is it the view that to be an upstanding citizen, one has to go to church. You've got a little name plaque on your seat and that's where you sit every Sunday. That was the view generations before. To be an upstanding citizen, you had to go to church. You were part of the institution. No longer is the church seen as the vehicle for good in the world. The church was the one who set up schools, set up hospitals. No more does the church have this tame voice. No longer is the church a trusted, well-respected voice looked to by those in power for wisdom and reasoning in the way that it was before. That ship has passed a long time ago. Now, all that to say, that's not to say that the church doesn't still have a voice but it's increasingly been shifted to the margins. John Mark Comer, in his latest book, puts it this way. He says, It's no secret that our increasingly post-Christian culture is no longer warm or even neutral to the gospel. Instead, it's hostile to it. Many people perceive Christianity as part of the problem, not the solution. Most secular people have zero interest in hearing the gospel, preferring to look for salvation in other sources. And so what remains in the language of Mark Sayers who's an Australian pastor and author, he says, we find a holy remnant who stay strong in the Lord and who stay strong together in the church. A group of believers who are deeply devoted and faithful to the mission of God in the midst of an increasingly hostile society. Do you feel the tension? We live and breathe it. For those of you who have kids, you take your kids to school and you're like, they're the only kid in the class who goes to church. You and your workplace might struggle to find a fellow work colleague who goes to church. You might be the only one. You are in exile. You're a minority. You are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where everybody else is bowing the knee to a different God and finding salvation in different means. You are the one who is standing strong to say, I believe in Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God who breathed life into all of creation from the beginning of time, and it's still the same God yesterday, and he's the same God today. So, I hope you're feeling good and positive, because in some ways this can feel hard. But I wanted to paint this picture because this is the society and the world that we live in. This is where we're living and breathing. This is the air that we're in. It's a, it's a hard air. It's a hard ground. This is why we've done this whole series on resilient faith, because you and I need to flex this muscle of resiliency. We're in the midst of a culture where we are the exiles. We are a minority where our voices increasingly push more and more to the margins, where to be a Christian, you are seen as maybe irrelevant and maybe weird, right? To make a claim that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth, that is a claim that for many people, they don't even know the name Jesus anymore, other than it being a swear word. But the name of Jesus is the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus is the name that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But that is not what we see in society. And so as those who make a claim that Jesus is Lord, we need to understand that we are exiles in the midst of a culture which is in opposition to the pursuit of following other gods, other idols, other things that make claims to say this will save you. But we know that that doesn't. For we know that salvation is found in God and God alone. Amen right? Like, I, let me, like, I'm going off script here. I want to say something now. We need to, as Christians, get excited about the fact that God saves us, 
right? We're coming towards Easter, where Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the world. And if we in church can't get a little bit excited about the good news of the gospel, God help us when we step out into a society which is causing our voices to be silent. Can I encourage you, church, that when we're here, if we can't exercise a hallelujah, if we can't exercise a God, thank you for who you are, if we can't get a little bit more Pentecostal and charismatic in our understanding that God is the one who saves us, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, if our voices are silent in the church, we will be silent in the world. Can we get a little bit noisy? We can do better. We'll get there. But do you know what I'm saying? Right? If we, can't, if we find ourselves a little bit uncomfortable in church, saying the name of Jesus, singing the name of Jesus, giving praise to Jesus for what he has done in our lives, we need to find a strengthening even more for when we go out into the world, where we try to talk to our work colleagues about Jesus. When our voices are silent in church, we'll get there. Come on. There is so much social and societal pressure on us to to be a certain way out in the world. To vote like everyone else, to think like everyone else, to dress like everyone else, to behave like everyone else. To be a certain way, to not be weird. And yet, let's be honest, as Christians, we are weird. We don't brunch on Sundays. We come to church. We don't go for walks at the beach on Sunday mornings. We come and sing holy karaoke. Like, we're weird, right? Let's just own it. Let's just own it and be comfortable in our skin. And we're doing it not because of anything other than the fact that Jesus has saved us. That he came and he died for us. If you're you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, let me just say this. We believe as Christians that Jesus is the greatest news of all. Even if sometimes we don't act like it. We believe that Jesus is the greatest news of all. That Jesus came into the midst of the brokenness of the world. And he did that then and he's doing it still now through the power of his spirit. And he came to save sinners like you and I. And he came to say that where you are feeling lost and hurt and broken, where maybe others in your life have have abandoned you, have hurt you, that there is a Savior and his name is Jesus who died on the cross for you, who rose to new life, and he forgives you and he loves you. May you know that today. If you're watching this here, if you're watching this online, that there is a God who sees you and loves you. Amen, (laughs) right? There's a God who sees you and loves you. So here's the challenge, right? And I want us to be aware of this challenge. As we think about this, I've got two words for you. One is syncretism and one is separation. Let's get really practical. If you're like, I don't know what that means, let's go. Let's dive in. First one is syncretism. Think of the word in sync, right? What do you do when you're in sync? If Drew, Drew, stand up for a moment. Come, come here. Come on, buddy. If we, if Drew and I walk in sync, what do we do? We haven't got far to go. We walk in sync. Left, right, left. Oh, my goodness, right. Thank you. That was, you get the illustration. Thank you, Drew. Um, if you walk in sync, if you are in sync with something, you are just are exactly the same. Right? Syncretism means to conform. And for you and I, we live in a culture which is constantly telling us to be a certain way, to step in sync with it, to do the things that it does, to live the way that it does. And if we're not careful in our lives, we can drift towards syncretism, where we just look and do the same things that everybody else does, right? We go with the flow of public opinion. We settle into a pattern of conformity where we just begin to live and breathe exactly the same way that the world lives. Our language is no different. We speak about our work colleagues in the same way that everybody else does, and we start gossiping and belittling, and that's not the way of Jesus, 
but we step in sync with the things that are happening. You feel that pressure in your workplace to conform to the way that everybody else is doing, right? For those of you at university, you just begin to live and breathe the same air that everybody else is breathing, and before you know it, you're drunk, passed out on the floor, and you've done exactly the same thing as everybody else has done. You've stepped in sync with the culture that you're in. That's syncretism. We live in step with the culture that we're in. The other word is that of separation, where as Christians we can go, I don't, want to, I don't want to step in sync with everyone else. And so we just do this thing of separating. We get into a holy bubble, a holy huddle, and we go, I'm afraid of the world. I'm going to shut the door. I'm going to dig a moat. I'm going to pull the drawbridge up, and I'm going to run away. This is what we see in the Bible with a group, a group which is what, not, not well known, but they are mentioned a few times, called the Essenes. The Essenes, they ran away. They lived in caves around the Dead Sea. And they said, I don't want to, be con- I don't want to conform to the, to the structures and the, and the position of the Roman Empire. And so in order for me to stay strong in the faith, I'm just going to hide away. For some of us, that's what we do. We come to church to escape the world. We stay in our homes and we don't want to get involved in the things of the world. And we live separate and we try to like, just stick our things in our ears, hands in our eyes. If I just pray hard enough that all the bad things will go away, then I'll be okay. But again, I'm going to say, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way. We don't see Jesus do that. What do we see with Jesus? He gets into the middle, into the messy, messy middle of it all. At times he separates and he goes away to be with the Father, but he comes right back into the middle. He doesn't step in sync with the culture because the culture said, why would you go and spend time with little children? Jesus said, let the little children come, for the kingdom of God is for people like these. For those who are outcasted in society, he said to Zacchaeus, come down from the tree, I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. He didn't step in sync with society, and he didn't run away from society. He was right, smack bang in the middle. And so here's the thing. Separation, syncretism. We live in a world which is increasingly pushing us to the margins, where we're exiles. You see the pattern? I hope you're tracking with me so far. Right? We're going somewhere. I would argue that neither of these postures, syncretism and separation, are where we are meant to be living. We are meant to be living in the smack bang in the middle, in what I'm going to call radical redemptive participation in the things of the kingdom. Right? It's very catchy. It will stick. Right? Radical redemptive participation. We, Jesus taught us to pray. What did he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We don't step in sync with the world. We don't, we don't separate from the world. We step into the messy middle, radically redemptive participation, where we go, God, what are the places and spaces in this world that you want to redeem, that you want to make right? Maybe it's in in the areas of healing, in the areas of family, in the areas of whatever it might be, politics. And we go, I'm stepping into the middle as a Christian to say, I'm going to participate. I'm not running away. I'm participating to see redemption, to see things made whole, to see things made right, that I'm going to go in empowered by the Spirit to live the way that you've called me to be, participating to say, God, use me for whatever you want. And that's hard, because I tell you now, it's way easier to be out in the side of syncretism, just to live the way everybody else lives, to go along with the flow of everything else. It's even easier, in one sense, to shut the door and go, la, 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 just do whatever I want to do, but I'm not going to get involved in the things of the world. Radically redemptive participation in the things of the kingdom, that is hard. That is hard, but that is, I want to challenge us, that is what we're called to do. Paul in Romans 12 says, do not conform to the pattern of the world. Do not step in sync with all the things that are going on, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then, he says, 
You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, what does this mean for us? Let's get even more practical. Are you tracking so far? Great. You're getting louder. It's great. What does it mean for us? Let's, uh, let's look to the words of the Pope. In May 13th, 2004, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who later went on to become Pope Benedict XVI, in a lecture he gave on Christian roots in Europe, he spoke of the loss of faith throughout Europe. And he said this line, which I think is such an incredible, beautiful line. He said, Christian believers should look upon themselves as a creative minority. As a creative minority. Remember, as I said earlier, in this post-Christian world, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be in exile and is to be a minority. So we need to see ourselves as a creative minority. Now, don't get hung up on the word creative because you might be thinking, I can't paint, I can't draw, I can't write songs. Creativity might just be having a conversation with someone, thinking outside the box, inviting someone around your house, like having a meal with like there's, there's lots of ways of creativity that isn't just, you know, drawing, painting, singing a song, right? Let's just keep that in mind. John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York, he riffed on this line from Ratzinger and he said this, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. Think of the church, right? That's you and I. A stub- stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. We don't do this alone. We do this side by side as a knotted web of relationships who go, how can I stir and spur you on? How can I encourage you to step out into the world to do the things that God is calling you to do? Because the truth is, we can't, as an individual, change a whole nation. None of us carry that much influence in ourselves, but we all have areas of influence that none of us have. You have a place of work that I don't get to go to. You have a family that I may never meet. You, you frequent a gym or a bar or a restaurant or, that I don't go to. You get to participate in those spaces out in the world in places that other, others of us don't get to go to. Imagine all of us just turning up to your place of work. That would be weird. But you're there. And you get to participate in the things that God is already doing and already at work in that place. All of us have areas of influence. Different places, different streets that we live on, different neighbors. And so as creative minorities, as those who are in exile, those who are a minority on our street, we get to say, how can I be a blessing to those around me? How can I be creative in thinking about, about cultivating conversation about serving those who live around me, about inviting neighbors into my house who, who I may never cross, cross paths with. How can I be a blessing to those who are in my workplace? And as a group of people knotted together in a living network of persons, we get to stand together as a church to encourage, to pray blessing, to support and equip and send out into the world. I want to tell a story, and I'm going to sit down for this. I want to tell a story. Um, it's a story that um, Philip Yancey, in his book, which is a, a wonderful book if you've ever read it, called Rumors of Another World. And in it, he tells this story of um, the remarkable life of a man named Ernest Gordon. And I just want to recount it to you now, if you've never heard this story before. There's a movie of it. I started to watch it this week, and it's quite brutal. Um, it's about a group of soldiers in World War II who get captured by the Japanese, and they get put into work in a slave camp in Japan to build um, the Burma-Siam Railway uh, through the jungle. And, um, and in, in the story, 
It, uh, it talks of how in the camps prisoners were beaten to death if they appeared to be lagging. They worked in seriously hot heat. It was over 48 degrees. And, uh, and eventually 80,000 men died building this railroad. Gordon himself got sick and almost died. And the prison camp is uh, an example of survival of the fittest. Uh, people fought, attacked, and schemed for the most meager of provisions. Selfishness was a core ethos of the camp. But some, one day, something shifted. One of the returning work crews was missing a shovel. And uh, as they were counting in, uh, the men, as they came back from working, as they counted in the shovels, they found that one shovel was missing. And the Japanese guard lined all the prisoners up. And he started shouting at them. And he said, if the shovel was not returned, he just shouted these two words. He said, all die, all die. Tension blanketed the group. Obviously, fear was coming over them. And then one man stepped forward from the crowd and said, I did it. The guard brutally beat this man to death in front of them as an example to the rest of them. Later that evening, it was discovered that they'd miscounted. The shovels were all there. It was an act of selfish, selfless love, which then began to transform the ethos of the camp. One of the prisoners remembered Jesus' words, no greater love has any man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. The truth of that verse lived and began to be demonstrated throughout the camp. Gordon recalls in his book, he says this, death was still with us, no doubt about that. But we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity and creative faith on the other hand, with the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God has not left us. He was with us, calling us into the divine life of fellowship. Philip Yancey in the book goes on to explain how the kingdom of God began to break out in the camp. In the midst of the hell of war, the beauty of heaven shone through. And here's where we start to see the creativity come in. They started pooling the gifts and talents of the prisoners together to form a jungle university. Gordon himself taught philosophy and ethics. The university soon offered courses in history, philosophy, economics, maths, natural science, and at least nine languages, including Latin, Greek, Russian, and Sanskrit. They built a church as a sacred place of worship. They made their own paint and started galleries with showings. They made instruments and performed Mozart, ballets, and musical theater. And when they were eventually released, they treated the guards who had tortured and brutalized them with kindness and compassion. Yancey concludes the story with these profound words. Perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favorite topic of the kingdom. 
in the soil of this violent, disordered world. An alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of that coming rain. Friends, I think that is beautiful. I want to hold on that line there as it ends, where he says, but planting settlements in advance of that coming rain. This is the call for you and I as resilient disciples of Jesus in the midst of a world where we're increasingly exiles, where our voices are told to be quiet, where we need to stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong in the words of Paul, that how do we transform the world through radical redemptive participation by planting settlements of the kingdom wherever we go? by planting settlements of the kingdom wherever we go, one conversation at a time, one invitation at a time, one act of love at a time, one act of kindness and generosity at a time, one arm around the shoulder of a colleague who's going through a grief, just spotting people, seeing how they are, we begin to plant settlements of the kingdom one place at a time. And this is what we saw with Daniel getting on his knees bringing the kingdom of God to bear on his knees. This is what we saw with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, taking a stand when everybody else bowed the knee, the kingdom of God coming, the kingdom of God coming. You see, in each of these cases, they were being a creative minority, partnering with God to see redemption come about. So maybe the band want to come. And, uh, and I want to invite those of you now in a moment who, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, want to take a stand when everybody else is bowing the knee to a different gospel. And you want to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to take a stand and say, I want to be the type of person who participates to see the kingdom of God come in my place of work, to see the kingdom of God come in my family, to see my neighborhood, the streets around where I live transformed by the gospel. I want to take a stand in the way that Daniel did. I want to be a prayer warrior. And I want to get on my knees before the window day by day by day, praying that the kingdom of God will come. I want to be like the man in the camp, like Ernest Gordon, who begins to radically participate in the things of the kingdom of God to say, actually, we don't need to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We begin to be creative with the gifts that God has given us. And we can begin to bear fruit amongst the community where there is death, 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 and more death. But we can begin to breathe life because he is a good, good God who loves his children. I want to participate to see the city of Portsmouth transformed through my place of work. I want to, be a, uh, I want to see the city of Portsmouth transformed through, through the way that I act when I'm out on the streets. I, w- I want to be the type of person who when... When the rubber hits the road and it gets hard and it gets tough, that I would take a stand for Jesus and I would say, your grace is sufficient. That where I am weak, you are strong. I wonder if that's you today. I wonder if that's you today. We've gone on a big journey. I've gone on way too long. I hope you catch my heart in this. Separation, syncretism, the way of the kingdom. Our call as resilient disciples of Jesus is to live in the way of the kingdom in the messy, messy middle. In the messy, messy middle. Would you all stand with me? 
If there's anything from the teaching that challenged you, please know that we're praying for you and would love to support you. If you need any help or support, please email pastoral at thekings.church. God bless you. See you soon.